Right, before I reveal what is in the box, um, would I take a moment and recognize two people real quick? Um, first, it is just amazing to see Penny Gruber back this morning. Uh, we are very glad to see Penny back. Um, and also, as you know, I have been married now for about seven weeks, and I would not be a good husband if I did not wish my wife happy birthday today, because today is Katie's birthday. All right, so now I have my husband points for the day, and now we will uh, to the, begin. This morning, actually, I want to start with um, a little show and tell that is going to lead into a little history lesson. So I have with me this morning a tug-of-war rope. And uh, I took some time this week to actually read up on the history of tug-of-war. And yes, there actually is a history of tug-of-war. And in fact, did you know that we have a United States Amateur Tug-of-War Association? Uh, it was founded in 1978, to be exact. Um, but so, real quick, some history on tug-of-war. The, the sport of tug-of-war directly puts two teams against each other in a test of strength. Teams pull on opposite ends of a rope with the goal being to bring the rope a certain distance in one direction against the force of the opposing team's pull. Now this tradition has been around for quite a while. Um, there is uh, at least one cave or one tomb in Egypt uh, that is 4,000 years old, that has pictures or paintings depicting teams of three young men in a ropeless version of tug-of-war. There's also evidence of tug-of-war being used for various reasons in Greece, Rome, Burma, Congo, Korea, India, Indonesia, Hawaii, New Guinea, and New Zealand. And in fact, starting in 1900 with the Paris Games, Tug-of-war was an official Olympic sport for 20 years. And a little American pride, an American team from Milwaukee brought home the gold in tug-of-war in 1904. But after 1920, tug-of-war was removed from the Olympics. But in 1960, the Tug-of-war International Federation was formed to govern the sport on an international level. The sport of tug-of-war has been included in the World Games from the first such event in Santa Clara, California in 1981. And now that we know probably more about tug-of-war than we ever wanted to know, um, I will uh, end this lesson with a definition that I found in the Oxford English Dictionary, which defines the phrase tug-of-war as a decisive contest a real struggle or tussle, a severe contest for supremacy. And this morning, I want to turn our attention to another decisive contest, another real struggle, another severe contest for supremacy. And that is the contest and the struggle for our faith. Because whether we realize it or not, there is a real struggle going on every day for our faith. And truly, it is a severe contest for supremacy because there are only two sides or outcomes to the struggle, and each side or outcome has an eternal impact with it. 
to, to understand the struggle more, I want us to turn our attention this morning to the book of Jude, which is the next to last book of the Bible. Um, it's not even chapter one because there's only one chapter to the book of Jude. Um, sandwiched in between John 3 and Revelation. And one of the things that I do on Sunday mornings when I, I teach the kids, and in fact, this morning I will be teaching um, the kids' lesson is on the book of Jude as well this morning. But one of the things that I like to do and I think is important when we study the Bible is to get some of the background information to the book that we are studying. Um, so quickly, just three things about the book of Jude. First, who wrote the book of Jude? As the, as the title tells you, Jude wrote the book of Jude. But who exactly was or is Jude? Jude, as he himself states in verse 1, was the brother of James and servant of Jesus. But both Matthew and Mark in their Gospels identify as a half-brother of Jesus when they call him by his Greek name, Judas. And early church evidence points to Jude having served as an itinerant missionary in the early years of the formation of the New Testament church. The second piece of background information is who is the book of Jude written to? The exact recipients of the letter are unknown. Uh, some scholars believe it was written to Jewish Christians because Jude uses many references to the Old Testament and also cites Jewish apocryphal literature, which is the books that are not included in our Protestant Bible. They're included in the Catholic Bible, uh, and most of them were written and took place during the time that elapses between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So he uses a lot of references to those books um, which would have been familiar to the Jewish believers. However, this simply may have been because Jude himself was Jewish and would have that knowledge. Um, and the fact that the letter is not addressed to a particular church may mean that it was, it was a circular letter which was passed on to many churches during that time. And then the third background information is what is the purpose of the book of Jude? And there seems to be two purposes in the book of Jude. The first one is that Jude is warning the church against the evil that is present in the church, namely false teaching. He specifically warns against those who have gained admission into the church and have perverted the grace of God by denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, he charges these ungodly people with the sins of defiling the flesh and rejecting authority. And then his second purpose is to call on Christians to contend, to fight, to struggle for our faith. So with that background information in place, I ask you to stand this morning as, uh, as I read from Jude. I'm going to read a couple of verses at the beginning and then jump to the end. So we will pick up with uh, verse 1. And it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were des designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then jumping down a little further, 
It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. This is uh, starting in verse 17. And brother of, oh, sorry. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then the verses I read uh, during the welcome this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again this morning, I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, Lord. Pray that you would be magnified this morning through the message of Jude. Pray that um, just that the message of the challenge that is real for our faith, for our church, Lord, that it would be clearly understood this morning, Lord, and that we would be um, just united um, in the call to contend and to fight and to struggle for our faith. And we just pray and ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to draw our attention to three truths about the struggle, the fight for faith that we are in. First, we will look at who or what we are struggling against. Second, we will look at how we fight the struggle. And lastly, we will look at the promised outcome of the struggle. So first, who or what are we struggling against? Jew tells us in verse 4 that our struggle is against certain people, ungodly people, who have crept in unnoticed and perverted the grace of God and have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then, once again, we jump to verses 18 and 19. He added that in the last times there will be scoffers following their only godly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. If you were to take time to look at verses 5 through 16 that I skipped over, you would see that Jude gives examples from the Old Testament of these types of people. Those examples include the angels who followed Lucifer and were subsequently bound in chains until the day of judgment, the cities and people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were destroyed because of their sexual immorality, and Cain who offered God an unacceptable offering, then killed his brother out of jealousy and was then banished from the land. And then after these, these specific examples, he concludes uh, kind of the section that is verses 5 through 16 by saying this. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The scary thing about this list and the scary thing about this text goes back to verse 4 when Jude says that these people are in the church. These aren't people outside the walls of the church. These are people in the church. And they are working to tear down our church. They are working to tear down our faith. Paul, in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, predicted that just this would happen. 
He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul predicted it. Jude confirmed it in the early church. But I'm here to tell you that they're not, they weren't just in the church in the early church. These people are in the church in 2018, in the North American church that we know and call church. They are here. And they might even be here in our own church today. And, and as we go through this morning, we see we have the responsibility to call out that sin, to call out Satan in our church so that we can fight and struggle for a genuine faith that is built, as we've already sang this morning, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. John Piper says that the worst enemies of Christian doctrine, and I would add to that the worst enemies of the church, are Christians who do not hold to the faith. I want to keep diving in a little bit deeper on this point and look at how Satan uses people, Christians in the church today, to destroy the church and the very faith on which we stand. And once again, remaining true to the text of Jude, I feel like I have to remind and point out that Jude is primarily focused on false teachers who have crept in and are perverting the word of God. However, in that section of verses 5 through 16, he, he says that it's not just teachers. It's other things, other people as well that are in the church. And uh, so Tom Rayner, who is the president of LifeWay, in an article published in November 2012, identifies several ways that Satan uses people in the church to destroy the church. Among his list are members who demand their preferences be met, members who fight over what is the right worship style, members who avoid high levels of commitment, leaders and teachers who minimize the truths of God's word, small groups that spend more time talking about sports and the latest gossip instead of spending time in God's word, members who don't spend sufficient time in God's word during the week, members and leaders who don't consider evangelism to be an important part of their day-to-day -day lives, members and leaders who will not take a biblical stand on hot-button political topics such as abortion and homosexuality, members and leaders who are too busy to spend regular time in prayer, and lastly, members and leaders who are too busy to regularly attend worship services at and outreach opportunities through their local church. The enemy is real. The struggle is real. And it is a severe contest for supremacy because if we allow these evils to be present and take hold in the church, in our church, then I promise you that the church, our church, will not stand. And in fact, Jude in verse 5 tells us exactly what will happen. And he says at the end of that verse that we will be destroyed. Now, the second purpose of Jude's letter was to call, well, it is a call to fight for the faith. So let's look for a minute at how we fight against this struggle. The answer, I believe, is found toward the end of Jude's letter in verse 20 when he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
I believe in these four verses and throughout Scripture, we find five basic ways to fight against the evil that is trying to take root in the church in order to destroy it and our faith. The first, the first means of fighting the struggle is prayer. And probably what is the most famous scripture on spiritual warfare, the armor of God in Ephesians 6, Paul includes prayer as a weapon when he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The word of God is full of accounts describing the power of prayer in various situations. I just want to name a few of them for you this morning. First, in Psalms 6, 9, and 10, the power of prayer has overcome enemies. Second Kings 4, 3 through 36, the power of prayer has conquered death. James 5, 14 and 15, the power of prayer brings healing. Mark 9, 29, the power of prayer defeats demons. God, through prayer, opens eyes, he changes hearts, he heals wounds, and he grants wisdom. The power of prayer should never be underestimated because the power of prayer draws on the glory and the might of the infinitely powerful God of the universe. And there is no stronger source of power than the infinitely powerful God of the universe. So we really have no stronger weapon, no stronger means of fighting this battle than through the prayer and calling on God to be not even on our side, not even battling with us, but to be fighting before us. Because ultimately, he's already won the battle. He's won the struggle. He's won the war. We just have to proclaim it and follow him in that victory. So the power of prayer. Number two, reading, studying God's word. The word of God allows us to defeat the devil, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119.11, when he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God sets us free as John in his gospel says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Also, the word of God strengthens our faith. Paul in Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And lastly, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we know God's word, it will definitely help us fight against evil. And in fact, that, verse, that last verse from 2 Timothy says, we are not even a complete man, a complete woman, without knowing the word of God. The third means of fighting this struggle fighting this battle is evangelism and discipleship. One of the best ways to fight evil and Satan's presence in the church is to call people out of sin and into a relationship with Jesus Christ and then to disciple them. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then very similar to it, Matthew 28, 18 and 20, as we know as the Great Commission says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end 
of the age. One way to get rid of Satan and to defeat this battle was just to get Satan out of the church and to call Satan out of unbelievers and call people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. There's almost no better way to, to rid him than the, the presence that he has over unbelievers. Call, call him out of those unbelievers and call them into a believing knowledge of Jesus Christ and strengthen that battle. Fourthly, personal and corporate worship. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Theologian Tim Keller says this about worship. This is, I, mean, I found this quote this week. I almost cried in my office because of how just strong I believe this quote is. He says, The secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Moved by who God is and what he has done for you. And this needs to be happening all the time. Not just on Sunday morning for an hour but every day in our own lives, our own personal worship should move us in the way that that quote just described. And I would tell you that if our worship looks like this, I promise you that God will be present. And if God is present, there can be no foothold for Satan and the evils that want to destroy our faith and destroy our church. The fifth means of fighting this struggle is accountability. The last way we can fight against the evils that seek to destroy our church is by holding one another accountable. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I actually stopped right there for a minute. I had not planned to do this, but... Um, back in May when um, I was ordained uh, in late May, a few weeks before that, I had my ordination council. And um, one of the men who I asked to serve on that council and who was present the night of my ordination was Lee Davis. And many of y'all know Lee. I mean, he grew up here. He was an intern here. And he was one of the guys that kind of discipled me when I was in high school and, through, and in the youth group here. Um, and this was a lesson that I learned very hard um, you know, when I was in high school, lesson of accountability. Uh, and one of the reasons that the primary reason why I wanted Lee on my council uh, and him to be a part of my ordination was because God used him, used Lee to, um, to I mean, really open my eyes to the importance of accountability. And I would say in a lot of ways, um, he used Lee to, to keep me grounded enough to where I could even be here today, where I could have even been ordained back in May because my senior year of high school, um, probably starting about November, my senior year of high school, I started dating a girl who I had known for, for years. Um, and the, the problem with that was she was an unbeliever. Uh, and both of her parents were practicing atheists. And uh, when Lee found out about it, uh, he, he called me on it. And um, you know, he pointed me to scripture and told me how what I was doing was wrong and pointed me to you know, multiple verses in, in the Bible 
about how you know that was wrong, and so he, you know, he gave me a chance every every week, every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night when I came to church and got upstairs. The first person to greet me was Lee Davis, and he greeted me with the same question every time, and that was, "Are you still dating that girl?" And um, a couple months went by, and and I told him every time he every time he asked me, I looked him in the face and I lied to him. And I told him, no, we're just spending time together. We're just hanging out. I had some kind of excuse. And he, he saw straight through it. And after probably about three months of giving me a chance, three times a week for about three months, he asked me. And when I gave him one of my lines again, he's like, look, he's like, you're caught up in sin. He was like, Satan has wrapped his arms around you, and you are letting him do it. And he's like, and he basically, he pointed to this verse and he basically said, I can no longer associate myself with you lest I be caught up and stumble in your sin. And somebody who had given me rides to church events who I looked up to for a long time pretty much quit talking to me and cut me off. And, um, and that started to get things working in my mind, in my heart. And, but by that point, I mean, we had probably been dating for four or five months, and I had convinced myself that you know, I could not go to her and tell her we can't be together because you're not a Christian, and I am. Because I had let Satan convince me that the only way that she might would come to know Jesus was through me. And by me telling her I can't be with you because I know Jesus and you don't, I was afraid that that would turn her away from God forever. And so I was like, I can't do it. And I remember, say, it was my senior year, and you know, one of the great things about being a senior maybe it's still the same way, I don't know, is if you have good grades and good attendance, you can basically not go to school for the last two weeks because you're exempt from exams, and thankfully I was um, exempt from exams. So I had about two weeks where I spent time at home by myself. Uh, my brother was already in college, mom and dad at work, so I had a lot of time just to pray. And I remember I just prayed day after day and asked God, I can't do it. I was like, you're going to have to end this relationship. I can't do it. And the, I think it was the day after my graduation, she sent me a message and said that she wanted to break up. Um, and of course, like a hard-headed, stupid guy, my first reaction was, well, what did I do wrong? Let's fix this thing. Um, and about three or four minutes later, I was like, wow, God just answered a prayer for a long time. And I didn't, I didn't have to do it. God took care of it. And that next Sunday... I remember uh, we, were, we were still all in, in here for Sunday morning service, and I was in here with the kids, because one of the things that Leah told me was that if um, I did not get things straight in my life, that he was going to talk to Shay and other staff members and um, have them basically remove me as a volunteer at the kids' ministry. And I remember that Sunday, standing up here with the kids before they left to go to kids' worship, went with them back to kids' worship, and after church, I, made, I was making a beeline up the aisle to Lee. He was standing right over here, and I got to Lee. I was like, Lee, guess what? And he was like, I already know. I was like, what are you talking about? I haven't told you anything this morning. He was like, I already know. I was like, you know what? He's like, you aren't together anymore. And I was like, how do you know that? He was like, because I saw you over here this morning, and the presence of God was with you again. And it hadn't been for months. He was like, but it was. So this is real. Accountability really works. When we are willing to call out the sin in one another and even take it to the extreme of saying, I can't talk to you anymore. God will work through that. 
and what God has done since then in my life, bringing me back here, which in three weeks I will have been here seven years on staff, um, is amazing to me to be ordained here after all that happened. I know that this works, um, and I want to see this for our church. Continuing on, Matthew in his gospel, chapter 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If we do not hold one another accountable, and if we allow people in our midst to be overcome by temptation and sin, then we are giving Satan and his evil a foothold in our church. And he will most certainly use that foothold to try and destroy our church, to try and destroy our faith. Like I said, we have five great means of fighting against the evil that is trying to destroy our church and destroy our faith. Prayer, God's word, evangelism, discipleship, personal and corporate worship, and accountability. And if we are faithful to use these five means to fight against Satan and the evil that is trying to destroy the church, then our faith will persevere and we can look forward to the promised outcome of the struggle. What is the promised outcome of this struggle? Jude, in verse 1, says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And he continues at the end, in verses 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. If we are faithful to fight for our faith, to fight against Satan and the powers of evil that are looking to destroy the church, then God has promised to keep us. And he has promised that one day when we stand before the throne, we will be presented as blameless. I love explaining to the kids when we're going through, especially the discovery class with kids who are um, interested in getting baptized. And I love explaining to them how when God looks at us on earth, I mean, he sees us full of our sin. And even though we become a Christian, we're, we're, we still sin. God still can't be with that sin. But when that day comes, when we have to stand before God and be judged, he will not see us in our sin. Instead, he will see Jesus in his righteousness. And Jesus will stand and say, you know, treat him like you would treat me. Uh, last, I think it was last Sunday, our lesson with the kids um, was talking about, uh, I think it was, I think it was First Thessalonians, and it was talking about greeting, like greeting each other, greeting brothers. And um, Paul, in that letter, was riding to the churches because you know there there was this this kind of this issue going on where they were not you know bringing people in like the issues between the Jews and the Gentile believers. I mean, they just were not looking at each other. And he basically wrote to tell them, look, stop! You're hurting the church. You know, you need to welcome 
these people in as part of the church. You know, Paul also said it in uh, the letter of Philemon when he wrote the letter um, to Philemon about the sl his slave Onesimus, Philemon's slave Onesimus, who had ran away and, and was basically put in prison. He met Paul in prison. While he was in prison, he gave his life to Christ. And so Paul sent, doing the right thing, he sent Onesimus back to Philemon with the letter that we know as the book of Philemon saying, look, yes, he is guilty of running away from his master. He should be held accountable for that. But I want you to know that while he was with me in chains in prison, his life changed forever. He, he now knows you know, Jesus Christ, like I know him and like you know him. And he's like, so I'm asking you, he's like, I'm begging you to receive him back, not as your servant, receive him back as your brother. And Paul says, like, he ends that letter to Philemon saying, receive Onesimus back as you would receive me. And that's basically what Jesus is going to say to God one day when we stand before him in judgment, if we have put our faith, our hope, and our trust in Jesus, when God looks at us, Jesus is going to say, he knows me, I know him, I know her, receive him, receive her as you would receive me with no sin, spotless, blameless, and righteous before your eyes. So God has promised to keep us, and he has promised um, that he will present us blameless before God. Turning back to, to tug of war. We are most definitely in the middle of a tug-of-war match. God has called upon us, his church, to stand on his word and take that word to the ends of the earth. But Satan and the evils of this world are pulling hard in an attempt to destroy us, to destroy our faith, and to destroy the church. We definitely live in a time in history where the church is facing untold challenges. Today's Christian must be on guard for false doctrines and all kinds of evils that are looking to destroy the faith and the church. We must be on guard all the time, using prayer, using God's word, using evangelism and discipleship, using worship, and using accountability to win the struggle, because the struggle is real, and it is a contest for supremacy. And it's the supremacy of your soul and ultimately your eternal life. Because if we lose the struggle to Satan, we get to, unfortunately, look forward to an eternity spent in hell. But if we win the struggle, if we are on God's side of the tug-of-war match, we get to look forward to an eternity spent worshiping God, worshiping before the throne of God. So as we conclude this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then the first step to winning the struggle is simply calling out to him and admitting your sin and admitting your need for a Savior. Romans 10, 9, 10 tells us, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. But to the professing believer this morning, I would ask you to take a few moments and examine yourself by answering these following questions. This is quite a lengthy list. Number one, how is your prayer life? And maybe more importantly, what are you praying for? Number two, are you having daily time in God's word? 
And along with that, what is something God has revealed to you through his word this past week? Three, when is the last time you actively engaged in evangelism and told someone about Jesus? And are you currently being discipled and or are you currently discipling someone else? Number four, are you regularly participating in corporate worship and connect group? Or do you allow things of this world to take you away from times of worship? And taking it a step further, do you prepare your heart and mind for corporate worship and connect group? Are you getting ready on Saturday to be here on Sunday morning? Are you getting ready on Friday to be here Sunday? Are you getting ready on Thursday to be here on Sunday and on back the whole week? Are we actually preparing our hearts for worship? Number five, are you actively being held accountable by someone of the same gender, and are you holding someone else accountable? And then number six, are you allowing Satan to use you to spread evil in the church in order to destroy it? You have to answer these questions for yourself. I have to answer these questions for myself. But I say, let's be sure that we're on the winning side of a tug-of-war match. Let's pray. Father, we, we admit this morning, God, that the struggle is real. There is a real severe struggle battle that is being waged each and every day, each and every moment for the supremacy of our lives, Lord. Satan wants more than anything to destroy us as an individual and to destroy the church. Father, I pray that that we would take hold of your word, the truth in your word, Lord, that we would use the, the means that you have provided for us to fight and to struggle and to contend for our faith, to fight and to struggle and to contend for our church, Lord, because we do want to be on the winning side of the tug-of-war match, Lord. We want to be on your side, Lord. We know that you have promised us in your word that you've already defeated Satan. We know through the power of Jesus dying on the cross and raising him back to life three days later, Lord, you have defeated sin, you have defeated death. We don't have to do anything but proclaim that for ourselves and walk in that victory, Lord. So I pray that today, that every day, we as individuals would walk in that truth, we would walk in that victory, and as a church, that we would walk in that truth, that we would walk in that victory, Lord, and that you would use us, you would use this church to proclaim the gospel to our community, and ultimately to the world. Amen.